This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome into today's show, everybody. You are listening to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and today I'm really pleased to be joined by my friend, colleague, Mike Ficarra. He is going to talk to us about his book, Like Socks on a Rooster. So hold that thought. We'll get back to what that means in just a few minutes. But Mike, on your podcast, The Start Down, you always welcome your guests to introduce themselves and you say nobody introduces you like you. So I'm going to give you that opportunity, Mike. Tell our listeners about yourself. I appreciate that. First off, Ross, thank you for having me on. And thanks to all your listeners for listening. Now that the tables are turned, I realize how awkward this is. Asking somebody, <laughs> no, just kidding. First off, long story short, my name is Mike Ficarra. And I say my life has been split into kind of two ends. My adult life, if you will. One is as an educator, which my wife yells at me because I still identify myself as a teacher. Spent 10 years in the classroom, probably one of the coolest jobs I've ever had. And I really spent the second half of my career, and we'll talk about this a little bit, unknowingly went to go work for a startup, and I've worked in educational consulting for startups in the ed tech space. And then I've moved on now, and I've worked in every industry, everything from oil and gas to telecommunications, private personal brands. I've been able to do business development consulting in all those areas. That's a little bit about me. I'm also a big Miami Dolphins and New York Yankees fan. So there's like my fun little side facts. And I like to say my favorite font is Times New Roman. And uh, I once told Tim's story a story. Those are my fun facts that I like to give when I'm on a podcast. <laughs> there you go. So then if we time stamp, we won't timestamp this too strictly, but as of today, it's a good time to be a Miami Dolphins fan, which you can't always say, right? Yep. But uh, the team is looking really well. So Mike's in a good mood. So good. Let's carry that into our interview here and explain when you introduced yourself. You, you started your career as a teacher, yep. as an educator, and you moved into assistant principalship and Kind of that was your trajectory before you got into this entrepreneurship field. But so tell our listeners about that. Our listeners are primarily going to be educators. We have school leaders, teachers, district leaders. Talk to them about where you thought your career was going, right? The trajectory you were on, what your path was, and then how you ended up getting into what you're doing now, because I think in some ways it, was, it wasn't necessarily all planned along. You had no. certainly <laughs> exposure to entrepreneurship through your family. And in other ways, you just, you took advantage of opportunities as they came and made the most of them, but it wasn't like you had this grand vision of, okay, I'm going to move out of this field. You really enjoyed being an educator. 
Yeah, yeah, I really did love it. And even that was an accident, right? And I have the cliche entrepreneurial story now, but it wasn't when I was growing up, right? So I was born 1980 and 80s baby, you could do the math of what I am. But you know, when I was a kid, I don't think I even knew of what entrepreneurship was as a career, right? You had people that like had jobs, and then you had some people that owned businesses, but you never knew what an entrepreneur really is. And I think coming up in education back then, it was very linear, right? There was very much what you use, very systematic. I even watch the way my kids learn now. And I'm like, man, I wonder if I would have been a better student, but I wasn't. I was a terrible student as a kid. And of course, being that 80s, 90 baby, right? You were always told, unless you go to college, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So that was always the goal, but I never did good in school. And every time the punishment was, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful. You're not going to be successful. I never really knew what that was. And even as a kid, I didn't know what I went back and forth. Do I want to be a chef? Do I want to be a teacher? I didn't know what I wanted to be. There's so many things, but everyone was like, every time you told somebody something, someone always said the comment, we're not going to make a lot of money doing that. That was always the downfall of what you picked. Unless you told me you were going to be a doctor or a lawyer, but Lord knows I wasn't smart enough to do that. So I really fell into teaching kind of accidentally because I didn't do well in college, failed out a bunch of times. And then I finally got the opportunity. One of my old teachers came in and this really goes to show you how important teachers are. I was waiting tables at the restaurant, came in and said, hey, we need substitute teachers. And a stupid 20-something-year-old me said, that sounds like an easy job. And I went in and I took the sub job. And then the librarian ended up getting, she was pregnant, but she ended up getting put on bed rest. And they put me in the library, which is ironic, because once again, and that I wrote a book. I don't like to read. I'm not a big book guy. But I just fell in love with education. It was in a high school. I fell in love with being in the building. And that's when I got bit by the bug. And I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And then as I grew in that career path, I knew that I wanted to do something to continue to grow and give an education. This was like early 2000s. So things like podcasting and video and all that were relatively new. Then I moved in and I went to take an assistant principal job. And unknowingly, they were running a startup out of that school. <laughs> so mm-hmm. here I was thinking I had moved up the educational corporate ladder. But it turns out that I ended up going to work for a startup. And that was really my first sort of inkling into entrepreneurship and my first step into it. Yeah, absolutely. And and you talked about your experience as a student and If you can think through as you progress through the different grade levels, you share in the book that you repeated first grade and then throughout consistently were your grades were middling, I guess you you could say you shared the same kind of continued into college. And yet it seems as though you had a couple of things going on. You had awareness of the fact that you weren't considered a great student, right? And you had whatever self-conception goes along with that, but you also had parents who were supportive and and you had some teachers who really reached out and made themselves available to you. It seems like you had both, it's not that you were oblivious to the fact that you weren't considered a quote unquote good student in the way that's defined. And yet you also had people around you who perhaps didn't make you think that meant that there was no future for you. But can you think through that? Because I think that's a really great thing for our listeners to think about how it doesn't really make a difference whether or not students are your A student, B student, C student. It's really about the kind of perception you help them create for themselves. Yeah. And I think looking back, obviously, it's easy to point fingers, I think, in education and say, oh, if school was different when I was a kid, and I know I even made that statement, but let's be honest, a lot of it was me, right? Like I just wasn't, I learned how to manipulate the system, if you will, right? Because I knew, okay, if you don't start strong and then you finish strong, like I was trying my best and getting C's anyway. So why don't I just struggle a little bit and then I could try and get C's. And that methodology worked for a while. And I think too, the idea that what also made it difficult for me is, like you said, some of that 
getting held back in first grade and failing first grade. And then I kid around and say it now as an adult, because it's much easier, but I was always like a little bit like had that as because I didn't do well in first grade and I was held back, I'm not a good student, which probably wasn't true. So a lot of this, I think was self-inflicted, but then it was also having a sister that was super smart and gifted. I was like, well, what the hell's wrong with me? <laughs> like, where did I fail? But when you look at the educational system itself, and I think being a teacher now, I know that looking at me as a student, there was always that, and I think this is the great thing about education, there's always people that invested in me, whether it was my parents, and I was very lucky. I'm one of those people who tell you I was very lucky to have two very loving parents raising me. I've heard a lot of stories as a teacher, and I just can't tell you how lucky I am, and they never gave up on me. I will say this, they didn't coddle me. It was never like, what's the teacher doing wrong? It's always like, what were you doing wrong? Because <laughs> we know those tables have turned a little bit nowadays, but... um. I think it was always the fact that I was given that opportunity. And in a lot of ways, that was a blessing and just going through the school system. And I think even when I came up, the type of kids we were and the things we were being exposed to in the 80s and 90s were all so new, whether right. it was technology or teaching methods or the idea of how we collaborate in education was all so different that I think I always had people that saw, hey, this kid's got potential. He's just not applying himself, but he's also not being a troublemaker or causing problems or doing all those things. And even to this day, when I talk about some of the stuff on a podcast or I put it out there, I'll have God bless social media kids that I went to elementary school with or middle school with or high school with. And then be like, I don't remember that about you. I don't remember you not being a good student. I remember seeing you as someone that like, sometimes when they would do the award ceremony, I was the only kid not going up. Right. And I mm -hmm. thought everybody was looking at me, but it turns out 30 years later, nobody remembers that stuff, but it's the teachers and the people around me that gave me the support that I think made all the difference, particularly one teacher I had in high school, Mr. Emmerman, he was a new younger teacher and he came in and he just said, okay, he didn't ask me like, Hey, how could you study better? How could you do this? What do you like? He's just, okay. Like what systems do you have in place? And this is very entrepreneurial, which I love. He's okay. Like, why don't you write out a list of everything you need to do when you get home and then just cross it off. That's rewarding crossing it off. And he taught me like things that were like outside of trying to tutor me in the subject area. Right. He didn't say, let's get you a math tutor. And let's get you a science tutor. Let's get you a social tutor. He's like, let's just put a system in place. that gives you accountability and structure and creates a sense of urgency. And which is ironic, that's the same teacher that I talked about earlier that came into the restaurant and offered me the substitute teaching job. So it just goes to show you how life comes full circle. I think it's just being able as an educator to identify those kids that are struggling and why they are struggling and how do we help them, I think is a big thing for kids nowadays. Right. And helping them to understand that themselves. You talked about your sports fandom and we know there's a pretty consistent of correlation in sports between how great somebody was as a player and how effective they are as a head coach. Oftentimes the best players don't make the best coaches because they can't really explain how it's done because to them, they could just do it. It was easy to them. They can't necessarily relate to that guy who's not as talented as they were. The same can very well be true of teaching. It's, it's not a hundred percent one way or the other, but if you're a student for whom learning was a little more difficult, but you figured it out and you had educators who helped you understand, okay, here's what you're struggling with. Here's what we need to do. You're going to have a very good understanding of what that process looks like to the point where you can then explain it to somebody else. And when we think about what your teacher did for you, where he reached out and said, Hey, we got this opening. You might be a good, we're going through a nationwide teacher shortage right now. Right. And there's mm -hmm. some districts that are doing, have programs, really wonderful programs around growing their own and yeah. recruiting from their own student body and encouraging them to go off, go to college, get certified to be an educator, come back and work here. And they're starting that from the time when they're in K-12 and thinking about the future of the profession, having that kind of mindset and mentality toward looking at students and saying, 
there's something in you that would make you a really good fit for this could be something for you for a student who doesn't consider themselves to be a great student it's probably not the first thing that would be on their list if somebody didn't say it to them to think i could be a teacher or i can make my career in this school when i don't really feel like i'm having an easy time of it yeah yeah and i think too even something you you hit on about the teacher shortage and like i went back to one of the things a lot of people told me was you're not going to make a lot of money if you decide to be a teacher and i tell everybody this day and I, and we could debate whether or not teachers are paid enough. My wife's a teacher. I get it. No question teachers aren't paid enough. But I will say this. When I taught, I was like, I can't believe they're paying me for this. I can't believe they're literally paying me money to be a teacher. I loved it so much. And when we go back to like making a lot of money and being successful, it's that question of teaching people, like, what's really going to make you happy? And that, and there's even people I know that have been teaching 20, 30, 40 years, and it's not like they don't have a bad life, right? They have money to do the things they need. But I think there's always this perception of, yes, teachers aren't paid enough. But I would say, who's... I've never met anybody that says, yeah, I make enough money for what I do either. But I do believe if you are passionate about it, and you mentioned the homegrown thing, I've also seen schools where 80% of their staff is alumni, and there's an energy in that school, right? And there's a passion, and there's a buy-in. There's a higher value in that, I think, than the dollar amount. And I tell everybody, when I taught, I was able to have two kids. My wife and I were both teachers. We were able to buy a nice home in a nice community. You could still do things. And I think kids are taught that, well, if you choose teaching, it's almost like a vow of poverty. <laughs> it's no, like... I know people that, that do very well as teachers. They have very nice lives. They take nice vacations. We need to stop too putting this idea of what success is and that and telling people, if you don't do this or you don't do that, you're not going to make a lot of money or that making a lot of money is going to make you happy too. Because one of the things I learned when I went to the entrepreneurial world is there's people I know that make a lot of money that are not happy at all. And like I said, I've mentioned you no know, people that, that aren't making maybe what would be considered a lot of money, quote unquote, but they are very happy. So there's also teaching that, and we talk about mental health and well-being and all that. That's a big part of this. And what a rewarding job teaching can be when you love what you're doing and you love the craft. And that's a big thing, I think, in the recruiting processes. And I don't want to say we want to stop talking about teachers not getting paid enough because I think it's something important to talk about because they have value. But on the same hand, it's not a vow of poverty like some people will paint that picture. And I think when I was going to become a teacher, that was what a lot of people scared me with was like, you guys are going to both teacher, you're going to have a hard time of it as young people. And we never did. Like we were always like, we did what we loved. We believed in it. And, we, and money always found us. And that was something that was really important to me. Yeah. And that's a really significant message because that perception really, I think, affects the number of people who consider pursuing that as a career. What we have definitely found time and again, speaking to educators who were teaching and decided to leave the profession, or maybe they just left their job, went to another school, or is that it? they never mentioned the money. It's the it's the work environment, it's their leadership, yeah. it's all these other things, because the reason why they got into it is because of all the things you mentioned. It's that mission orientation. It's they either had a great experience in school and they want other kids to have the same, or they had a challenging experience and they want other kids to have a better one and they want to help students. And everybody would always like to make more money. And, and we certainly should prioritize that. And it, it would do well to help us recruit more. But once you're doing the job, if you're doing what you thought you would be doing, or having the impact exactly. you thought you would have, that makes you happy. If you don't feel like you're having an impact, then you're going to say this isn't worth it <laughs> because yeah. that's not why I'm here. But it truly is important. And it's something that is a great opportunity for our current educators to see how they have a role in cultivating that future generation by the way they represent the profession, by the way they make their students feel about what that might look like. And even just even in the broader preparation for college and career, whatever profession 
kids are going to go into. There's also an opportunity to just think about more broadly, how do we define preparedness and who's equipped to succeed? Because as much as certainly there's other factors around the fact that life in America is not a pure meritocracy, right? Yes. It's not, but if we try as best as we can to extract some of the factors that different advantages, networks, and privilege provides the people, there's a certain, there's a certain amount, of course, of your success that can be driven by whatever your given merit is, particularly in entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. But the thing is, the things that are rewarded <laughs> as meritorious in school versus in the real world often don't align. And that's where I think we get as students these fixed mindsets that damaged can damage kids at any point in the good or not so good student spectrum, right? Because if you're a straight A student and you develop this mindset that you're just always going to be, things are always going to go well for you because yeah. I always do what I'm supposed to do here and I get good grades. Sometimes you end up in a field where there isn't a lot of financial upside, right? You have a high, you may have a high floor, but a low ceiling because you just learned that you just had to keep following that straight path and you didn't have to think about other things. For yeah. other kids who maybe aren't the best students, they might think that they're not going to end up being successful, <laughs> vice versa. A lot of times it's those kids who turn into the hustlers, right? <laughs> who right. say, you know what? things aren't just going to be handed to me. It's not going to be easy. So I have to go out and be creative and figure out new things. And a lot of times that's where the best ideas come from is from those people who were not considered the great student, but who were creative and who said, you know what? I'm going to have to figure out my way because the regular way might not be my way, but I'm going to impose my own way. So that's, I think, another thing to be mindful of. Yeah. And I even see, it's funny having, I have kids that range in the age from five to four kids. and you mentioned the entrepreneurial spirit. To me, it's very interesting in the way they have to learn now, right? Like lack of knowledge is no longer a problem, right? My five-year-old knows how to ask the Alexa that's built into our refrigerator a question he doesn't know the answer to on his homework, right? right. So we're no longer teaching them how to retain information. We're teaching them how to access information, right? So it's two totally different things. The other thing I think that you mentioned, the idea of, so it's discerning and figuring out not always following that right path anymore because and this always intrigues me, like the A student that does academically and then struggles in like art and the parent gets mad. They're like, they're doing well. Why are they not doing well in art? You should be super ecstatic that your straight A student is getting a D in art because now they're learning how to struggle. And then you got the latter end of that is you got the students getting all Ds. It's getting the A in art. Why are they doing that? Because we found their talent. Like we tend not to learn to foster the area where they're struggling and where they're succeeding. And what I think about the future student is in, in raising a few of them is that it's going to be different than when you and I were younger, or even a lot of what the, a lot of administrators and teachers came up with nowadays is we had to learn how to find the information. That's not hard anymore. Now you have to be able to discern, is that good information? Is that information getting you to a goal or to an endpoint? That's more of the challenge I think we have in education now. And it's almost like having to have that entrepreneurial mindset now is almost a requirement, whereas before it was like, a secondary option. It's almost right. we're teaching, we're educating little young entrepreneurs now to say, okay, here's all the information you have. What's the best way to discern this? Mm -hmm. And I think we need to let them do a little bit more of that and struggle a little bit more as well. I think it's it's two very fine lines. 
let's go to, so you were a teacher, you became an assistant principal for a number of years. You ended up, you went to a new school, and then this is when your kind of entrepreneurial journey started, when the opportunity presented itself, and ultimately you got into it and you learned by doing. So talk to me a little bit about what that was. Tell our listeners about what that experience was at that school and how you first got started. Because I think the story about learning by doing, there's a lot of powerful ideas in here. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where my wife was pregnant with our second child and I just finished my master's degree, which once again, thought you had to get a degree to go do the next level, (laughs) which you do in education. I say it opens the door. I have no regrets in getting it. But I ended up going to interview for a job. And on the way to the job interview, my wife called me and said, the hospital called. They're going to induce me tonight. I'm like, all right, you want me to come home? She said, no, I'll pack. I'll make snacks. I'll do whatever you need. And I went in for the job interview and they said, the assistant principal, they were interviewing me for assistant curriculum director role. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, like how serious are you about this job? And I said, my wife called me on the way here and said, she's having a baby and I'm talking to you. Right now. So needless to say, she said, oh, go home. You have the baby call me back. Needless to say, I got the job. But unlike anything else, right? It was, I don't want to say it was smoke and mirrors. I don't want to say they lied to me. I'm a big boy, but it wasn't what I expected it to be when I took the job. And uh, basically it was like an online learning management system and they were running a virtual school, but they had actually, I thought they had an LMS and content. They did not. They were designing all the LMS and content in house. So obviously coming out of the classroom for the better part of a decade and going into this first AP role and seeing all this work and all this stuff and not knowing what it was. I'm not going to lie. I, there was a, there was plenty of times, I don't even say at the end of the day, during the day, in the morning, on the ride there, I went in my car and cried. I freaked out. I tried to get my old teaching job back. I, I really was thrown into this, but it, when there was no other options, I was like, right, I'm going to dig into this and, and see what this is. And they had hired a guy to be the director of sales. He lasted about two weeks and ended up quitting. And they so I became the assistant principal of curriculum and assistant director of sales. And they started taking me on trips around the country to sell this online school into other schools. And I just, I was a teacher, right? So I was like, oh, you need me to present? That's easy. I know how to teach. I can present. So I would just get up and present the platform. And turns out I was good at it. And we ended up growing into about 32 different states. And then we ended up getting investment from a guy by the name of Wayne Huizinga, um, who, uh, speaking of the Miami Dolphins, if you don't know who he is, he owned the Miami Dolphins. He was owned Blockbuster Video for a period of time, sold it to Viacom. And he was like our local South Florida billionaire. So he put a lot of money into the company. I was promised everything under the sun. And once again, I take full responsibility for this, not blaming anybody, but I was promised a lot of stuff, stock options, equity, my own private plane. I got none of that. I got to fly on Wayne Heisinger's private 747 plane that he had, which was really cool. And a couple, uh, he had his own helicopter, got to watch in the skybox of the Dolphins game. But at this whole time, I'm still making a teacher's salary. And once again, not that there's anything wrong with the teacher's salary, but I kept getting promised more and I never got it. And we grew that. And like Wayne does with things, he ended up growing it and growing it. And as things grow and as money comes into a new startup, there was a little bit of, there's the people, and I always say this in entrepreneurship, there's the entrepreneurs that really understand entrepreneurship. And there's the educators that really understand education. Some of the greatest educational entrepreneurs I work with were people who were in the classroom, not people who were outside of it and saw a problem because they understand it. So when those two groups came in, I would say there was a little bit of tension and infighting. Long story short, I'm going to tell you, you got to read this one in the book. I don't know if I'm going to get this one on the podcast, but there's a story in the book that basically, I don't want to say I got bamboozled, but I definitely got put into a situation where I got sent to Nicaragua, was with the former president of Nicaragua, and when I came back, turns out he wasn't a good guy. And turns out we were, I don't want to say we got sandbagged, but we got sandbagged. And I ended up getting fired from that job, which was a crazy, the full details of the story are in the book. And once again, don't blame anyone else but myself. Should have seen some of the writing on the wall. They really fired my manager and I was underneath him. So he always said I was collateral damage. But at the end of the day, um, learned a lot from that experience, learned how to grow a company, learn what happened when money comes in. And I had two options at that point, because this was May when I got, oh, I was like, okay, like maybe I'll just go back to the classroom. And I was like, wait a second, man, I learned something here. And I figured some things out. I'm like, 
And I really believe in this entrepreneurship thing. I could see myself working with small businesses and helping them grow and helping other educational companies do things. So I started my own educational consulting company and anything else, it was a snowball effect. I've got a client, they got another one, they got another one and it just continued to grow. And I was, I loved what I did. It was hard. There was some lean times in the beginning, but was able to grow into a successful company and then got those companies partnerships with companies like NEC, Konica Minolta, Voyage Trip is Learning, was able to take some of these educational startups and get them teamed up with large companies for bigger distribution. Um, and it was a blast. I absolutely loved it. And then started to catch the eye of some other companies. So it really grew from that. But I think if I didn't have, and when you look back at it, if I didn't have any part of that experience go the way it did, I wouldn't have ended up where I am. So I'm, I'm really grateful for it, but it was definitely an interesting story to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the part of the story that's about the friction and the potential for a better working relationship between those practitioners who really have that hands-on experience with what actually happens right inside the yeah. classroom and those folks from the business background who don't have that experience and the fact that working together there's this and you write about partnership in the book right not doing it all your own working together there's unlimited potential there and in this field that's where so much of it is because it's all about that authenticity right we can mm -hmm. sniff it out pretty quickly one if somebody really doesn't know what they're talking about or they don't have that background, there's a lot of people who think they have great ideas because they think this is how things go <laughs> or how they can change it, but they don't have the humility to learn it and to work with people who really know it. And that's where I see that fork in the road in educational ed tech entrepreneurship, where it's like, do you have, do you have educators on your team? So for the educators listening, it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be your full-time position. You may have no desire to, to leave your role. And we hope most of you do stay where you are because you're doing important work. However, you may also have other ideas or other opportunities to impact students and your peers broadly through getting involved with different companies and the work they're doing out there. And that educator skill set is something that is really valued right now in the field, because I think a lot of the smart companies know this. Some of them, companies that aren't even working in education, but they just value the skill set that educators have, but others that are, that they see that. The other thing that I really like about that story, and I think it touches on something that's a pain point for a lot of people, is when you were thrust into the role of being both the assistant principal and the sales director, right? Because I think that's what most people think of themselves and say, well, I'm not a salesperson. And most people have an aversion to the thought of being in sales because there's this stereotype of, I guess this base, the fact is that if you're selling something that the thing isn't valuable, right? So you're trying to pull a fast one on people. You're that sleazy used car salesman, so yes. to speak, versus saying, look, if you believe in what you're doing and it has value and you know it's beneficial to people, it's your obligation to sell it. So if I'm, so anybody who's an educator, if I'm a teacher, I need to be selling to my kids the value of what I'm giving them, the, the value of getting an education, of the opportunity. If I'm a principal, an assistant principal, I need to be selling my school and selling that it's a great place to work, that it's a great place to go to school that we have great relationships with families, right? That all of those kind of things. And it's, what do you, what did you learn through that? Because it is that skill set that most people don't think they have and they almost don't want it, right? It's like, I don't want yeah. anything to do with yep. that. And yet it's, look, if you don't believe in what you're selling, then you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. If you do believe in it, you shouldn't be afraid to go out there and tell your story. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it, it brings to mind one of my clients and I love telling her story, Lisa Cullum. She's the founder of Top Score Writing, very similar situation, started in the classroom, designed this writing curriculum, this great writing curriculum, and then to prepare students for the, it was the FCAP back then. And then her and I, very similar, we each have four kids. So, you know, every time she went out on maternity leave, they were like, hey, where's your stuff? Where's your content? So long story short, she figured out that she had something here and she developed that content and she turned it into a writing curriculum and then she started to grow it. But one of the things she sticks to, even to this day, now that she's grown as a nationwide company, she's almost 10 years old now. She's grown it nationwide. I've worked on the business development with her. And every time she hires somebody, her thing is they always have to have either used my program or taught writing in the classroom. They have to be a teacher. 90% of the people on her team, the only people that aren't are like the back office people that like manage the websites and do the social media and do some of the other stuff. Right. Are everyone else is that her salespeople are all teachers. Her customer support people are all teachers or former teachers. And the value in that is I tell everybody selling, you kind of mentioned nobody likes to sell. And I agree with you. There's a guy that's been calling me and he calls every day and then he wants to get actually someone above me. And I'm like, no, nope, no, nope, it stops with me. You got to talk to me. And he kept hanging up on me. So finally I called him pretending to be someone else. And of course, I'm not going to buy from that guy, right? right? Why? Because he's abrasive and he's like, if you can't help me, I'm, there's no value to you. You're not going to buy from someone like that. On the same hand, I have another client that kept, and I was working with him on his business development. He had this really large brand that he wanted to sign. And he kept going to the CEO and kept going to the CEO. And then we were at a convention. We saw the CEO, him and I together, we bumped into him. And he, he goes, listen, I know what you want me to do. And he goes, I'm not going to do that. He goes, but I love your tenacity. I love how you never give up. You keep following up with me. You keep coming to me. And he goes, so I'm going to figure out something to do with you. And when you look at education, it's the same approach in the classroom, right? If you're a teacher that comes down and you'd be like, you're all going to sit down, you're going to listen to what I say, we're going to learn this, and you come out swinging, your kids aren't going to listen. But those teachers that come in, they tell you like, this is why you need to be excited today. These are our learning objectives, right? right? This is what we're going to cover. This is what you're going to know at the end of it. If you're in business as an entrepreneur, and especially in the education space, and you sell that way, or you run your business that way, or more importantly, you just communicate that way as a teacher does, a good teacher, there's so much more value in that in the other way of being. And like you said, I think we're all salesmen. We're all salespeople at this point. But the idea of it is, what is your approach, right? And everything else, if you use that aggressive, does it work sometimes? Sure. Is anyone talking in that teacher's class where she's yelling at him and telling him to sit down? And that was a big lesson for me because I always taught high school when I went down to, I was an AP. When I was the AP, it was elementary, middle. I didn't know you couldn't say shut up because <laughs> I was like, you get away with that in high school. That was right. a learning lesson for me. But the idea is, do people listen to that? Yeah, sometimes. But does that make you a good teacher? Does that let your kids know you care about them? No. And then also being too loosey-goosey on the same hand and not having any structure, that also doesn't make you a good teacher either. So it's finding those middle grounds. And I've seen the same is true in entrepreneurs and business, but I've seen the best people, especially in the ed educational sales space or people that transition from the classroom to bring in an educational product, they're successful not because they're good business people. They're actually really bad business people, mm -hmm. but they're good people that believe in something that wanted to say, hey, I was helping this many kids. Now I want to help. Sorry, I know it's audio, not video. I want to help a larger amount of kids. Right. I want to go bigger. I want to help even more people. And when you have that passion in a business, you can't teach that. You can't train that. And when that's there, those are the companies that I've seen really be able to excel and, and move in the right direction. Right. And that's the key word, right? People don't want to or don't want to feel like they're selling, but everybody wants to help. So if right. you think that what you have is going to help people, then you should do what you can to get it to them. Daniel Pink had a book out several years ago to sell as human, and it became a popular book for him to give keynotes to educators on because yeah. there's a lot of concepts in there about advocating, right? That it's not about feeling like I'm trying to trick you. It's about I have ideas or something that is of value to you, and I'm going to learn how to communicate that to you and advocate 
for you to use it. So in schools, that might be ideas, or it just might be the overall concept of here's the value of getting your education and here's why you should invest in this. And with companies, it's whatever product or service they have to provide to say, I know that I've done my research. You're the right user for this, right? You're the person who can benefit from this. I'm going to speak to you on your wavelength and tell you what I have for you and I'm going to help you, right? And for the consumer, yes, there's some you got to wade through the people who are authentic and the people who aren't. That's why there's a benefit if you're working with companies in the ed space and they're employing educators, you can trust that those people know what they're talking about and they can relate to you. It's something that it doesn't need to be a dirty word. And it's critical in all areas because I love the way you put, put this in the book. There's the concept of if you're not telling your story, somebody else will tell it for you, the way you write it. They aren't your haters, they're your narrators. And I think anybody who works in a school can immediately understand what this is about because it's that there's people out there who are saying things that you don't like that they're saying about you, and but they may not have any ill intent whatsoever. They're going off of the information that they have and what they perceive and what they think based on what they can observe. And if you're not actively and proactively going out to them and telling them about the great things you're doing, about the way that you're, you have this really successful program, the way you design this portrait of a graduate to ensure that their child gets to where they're going and so on and so forth. People are going to fill in those gaps with whatever they think. And ultimately the story gets away from you. And that's where a lot of friction comes from, right? Because we think it's a, it's an antagonistic relationship and it need not be that if you're going to, but you have to get out there and tell people about it. Yeah. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the book too. And even the reason why I say that is I was always, and you mentioned the failing first grade thing, right? That's something I kept secret for a long time because I was embarrassed. Failing out of college. That's something I would never speak of. I was embarrassed about it. Getting fired from that startup that I worked for. I would never talk about that because I was embarrassed. To your point, hundred percent, it's about celebrating the wins and telling the people the good thing. Because if you leave a vacuum and we know this in education, you leave a vacuum, people are going to fill it, right? There's parent chats, there's Facebook groups, they're going to, they're going to fill it. So to me, it's telling the good and also owning the bad. And I think that's what a lot of leaders sometimes miss out on is you also have to own some of your mistakes. Doesn't mean you got to air your dirty laundry. There's a big difference between owning your mistakes and airing your dirty laundry. Some people too get go way the opposite way and they're like, they put too much out there. But if you make a mistake, it's okay to own up to that. It's okay. Hey, this is what we did. We know Carline's still crazy. We're working on a system with that, but understand it's difficult to do because A, B, and C. I think a lot of times we don't we don't sing the praise or we don't acknowledge the problem or we go too far one way or the other. We'd go too far in saying all the things we're doing good and then brush the bad stuff away to make it look like we have nothing else to work on. And I think when you're transparent like that, and it's such a hard rhythm to find, I think in leadership, in, in your classroom, as a teacher, whatever it may be, even as a young teacher, I was always like, well, what do I share and not share? What do I let them know? What do I let them not know? And I had high school kids, so they would always ask you tons of questions. So that was a challenge for me. But I think once you could balance that level of transparency and trust, and then that's like anything else, going back to what we were talking about in sales or entrepreneurship or education or selling a product into education or knowing if something goes there. I hate the phrase, fake it till you make it. And I also mm-hmm. talk about this in the book only because it does, it's not necessary anymore, right? No one expects you. And this goes back to what I meant. You could ask the refrigerator any question that you need right now and get the answer because people no longer expect you to know everything. They expect you to know how to take the knowledge you have and help them solve a problem. And most people don't want to acknowledge the problem. And I think the problem is so important in success because that's what sales is. You're solving a problem. That's what education is. You're solving a problem. Even my kids say to me, why do I have to learn this? I'm never going to use this. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. 
I said, but two things. Number one, when you have kids, you get to tell them the same thing I'm about to tell you right now. (laughs) I said, and number two is it's going to teach you the discipline of how to do this and teach you how to maybe be a little more organized. Just take it as a challenge to yourself that there's something you didn't have to do that you're never going to use, that you were still able to learn and that you know that when the next challenge comes in, you have to do something. If I could do this that I didn't, I could overcome this thing that I do or that I really want to do. It's that balance. It's a very thin line. It's a very thin line. And that concept of owning your mistakes, whether you're an individual working in an organization or a company or whether you are an organization, right? You become much more able to do that and do that effectively if you are consistently also communicating about your successes, because then everything is in context and you're not feeling that pressure of, oh, the only thing they know about me is the mistake I made. And now either I have to try to find a way to shift blame for that so that it doesn't stick to me or I can own up to it, but they're just, everybody's going to think of me as I respect that person own their mistake, but they're the mistake person versus saying, okay, I respect the fact that this is a successful person, or this is an organization, a school, a company, et cetera, that's doing a lot of great things, but they also have the humility to understand when something didn't work out and they owned up to it. And so we know that they're invested in getting better and improving, and we know that their heart's in the right place. So again, it keeps, it circles back to, it's very hard, right? If you feel like the first thing anybody ever knows about you is that thing you did wrong. And you're like, ah, now I don't want them to, I don't want that to be the thing that sticks in their head, but that's why it's so critical. And you know, I think we've, I think we've gone far enough into this, that now's the time. Now's the time for the great unveiling. So Mike, the book is called like socks on a rooster. And actually the subtitle title, A Guide to Busting the Entrepreneurial Clichés That Are Holding You Back. But I think this is a story you have to tell. And for our listeners, what where does this title come from? The title itself is a nod to my father, who once again in the book, I talk a lot about the influence he was on me, my first exposure to entrepreneurship, my dad coming up to work for a company and always tried to do the right thing. And then there's a lot that went on there. Once again, you know, I talk about it in the book. And then he got involved in network marketing. So I learned a lot about entrepreneurship from my father growing up. But when we were kids and we would need to move furniture around in the house or or do things like this. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. So my dad would sometimes just rearrange the furniture so it looked new. We would move it around. Every time we get in just the right spot or it looked good, he would say socks on a rooster. And I didn't know what it meant when I was a kid, but shoot, if my dad was saying it, it must be, that must be what you say when you do something good. As I started to get into my college and my early teaching years, I would use that phrase when something would happen good or certain like that. I'd say like socks on a rooster and people would look at me like I was crazy. And they're like, what, what the heck does that mean? Turns out it actually does have a meaning on the internet. There's a whole thing, but it's really a nod to my father because he did that. But one of the things I learned was it was something that I just took for granted because I'd always heard it. And then when I was using it in context and no one else understood it, it didn't make sense. So I think I, I wanted to write, I could have gone with any cliche entrepreneurial title, bringing out the inner business within, or I had all these different ideas, but I was like, I think something like that, because it makes people question, wait, what does that mean? And yeah, what does it mean when the things you say in business, and it's easy to learn the sayings, it's easy to learn the processes, it's hard to do the actions, right? So it's both like a tongue in cheek, because it's not supposed to make any sense, but it also makes a lot of sense once you read the book as well. Perfect. Yeah. And it's, it means you, you accomplished something difficult and yep. Don't we try to do that every day? I think that's great for our listeners to understand. And you mentioned, right, some of this concept of networks and communities. And I know that you're big on the ideas of mentorship and what that means in our careers and not being isolated. And I think that's something, if we think about one, just a lot of our educators, administrators in a variety of roles that are probably listening to this, and especially if any of them are interested in potentially getting involved in other fields and maybe doing something entrepreneurial themselves or just otherwise getting involved in a field that's outside of their comfort zone. What's the importance of really just making sure that you 
continue to cultivate a strong network that you look for people who know more than you do that you don't also underestimate what you can do, right? yeah. that you look for those mutually beneficial relationships and understand that you have skills that you may not even realize as well. But ultimately, I think it comes back to, I think you mentioned in your section about marketing, right? A lot of people don't think of networking as marketing and having a network doesn't necessarily need to mean quote unquote networking, but it means understanding relationships and understanding how critical they are. Yeah. And, and I think when I talked about this earlier, especially for entrepreneurial or educational entrepreneurs, is that there's a passion there, right? And odds are you want to get something out of it. And passion is both good. And I always say your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness, right? So you're going to be passionate, whatever this idea was, you want to get it out there in the market. So I think it's important to go out and find people that are just as passionate as you, because you only know certain things, you know, about what you're doing, you know, where you're at, you know, how, like I mentioned, Lisa, with the writing thing, right? She knew what it needed to look like. She knew what the curriculum, when it came to invoicing and processing and back office things and creating marketing cloud, she didn't know that she needed to start to bring a team of people in, but you want networking allows you to meet people that are going to be either as passionate as you are about things and help you grow that mission. Or more importantly, if you get overly passionate and you're going too far in the wrong direction or you're losing focus of things that you may not be seeing, they could also sometimes bring you back down to earth, right? So I always say it's important to create these parameters and these bookends, right? That we could manage our business and look at what we're doing. And I think networking will allow you to do that. And no one expects you to know everything. And I think a lot of times in business, what we feel is that we have to go out and we have to know everything or teachers and educators, especially if you're in the front of the classroom, you've always been the source of information. You've always been that. When you move into, and I think a lot of educational companies start as a side hustle. So I think you're going to need the help either way, but that networking will really allow you to meet people that could already been there too. So why would I need to take the 10 steps on my own when I could take five and somebody could tell me how to go the other five or skip them and, and move to the next stage? So I think it's really important in that networking to get people who are where you want to be or, and also who are going where you're going. So you can learn about what the mistakes are currently happening. It just helps you fulfill those weaknesses that you may have that allows you to be successful because no one does it alone. I don't care who you are. No one does it alone. It's all about the team. And I can around and say a really successful business is when you don't know what's going on in your business anymore, because you've really trusted enough people and you put a team in place and no business is going to grow if you don't have a team. And even in education today, like you mentioned, like they, they bring in, I remember when I taught, I'd love when speakers would come in, especially from outside of education, because you'd learn something or you'd hear something. We could get very siloed in our own day-to-day, -day, our own view. So when we have that network, we have people from other industries or other areas. We're able to see the, where the blind spots are and see things that are missing. So it's such a key, important part. And more importantly, in the work from home area, I think it also keeps you out of the, if you will, loneliness. Right. <laughs> this is nice. Being on Zoom is nice, but it's not a replacement for face-to-face -face contact. And you're going to need that as you're growing your business. Absolutely. And so we'll touch on one more thing here before we get to the end game. But since we're on a podcast, <laughs> you write about podcasting in the book, and this is all kind of part of that section, right? About marketing and kind of growing your enterprise. And it applies to whatever you're doing, whether you're building your personal brand and your, your ability to have different opportunities present themselves to you, or whether you already have a specific business you're working on, other things you're getting out, you're going out, you're networking, you're meeting people, you're mentoring, and also podcasting a great way in particular for people who still have that quote unquote day job, but want to start building something else on the side to be able to share their ideas more broadly at scale without having to have one-on-one -on -one conversations all the time. And you were using podcasts all the way back when you were teaching, right? using yeah. podcasts for your students, and you have a podcast today that you continue to do with your business. What have you found about the benefits of podcasting and who should consider getting involved with podcasting? 
I think going back to networking, what's the hardest part of networking, right? Is walking into a room and seeing a bunch of people you don't know and being like, okay, how do I introduce myself? What do I say? What do I do? And the reason why it's funny you mentioned this, I went to an event last week and there was probably ironically about 10 people there that have been on my podcast. So it just made it easier to interact and communicate and network with people. So I think number one, it immediately grows your sphere of influence very quickly, which is why I love podcasting and it connects you with a lot of people. I, even with my podcast, selfishly started it because it's something I wanted to do. And like you mentioned, I'd done it when I was teaching to save time in the classroom because I could have the kids listen to my lecture and then I could do more in the classroom with them. And it was the same thing with my business, really. I just wanted to start to put stuff out there, brand myself. And then I started to interview people that maybe were things that I wanted to learn or that maybe I knew that people in the entrepreneurial community wanted to learn. So it was a great way to learn. It was a great way for me personally to network. And more importantly, it's a great way to give back. I truly believe that. And I think everyone should do some sort of a podcast. I think it's going to be the time capsule of our generation in some ways. And it's going to be the, a lot of people say there's so many of them out there. How do people know? There's also so many people out there. And it is a great way to network. It's a great way to uh, hold yourself accountable. It's a great way to meet new people. It's a great way to share stories. And I think being an educator, one of the things I loved about teaching was being able to intertwine stories into that and being able to do certain things. Podcast still allows me to do that. Like I said, for me, there's a lot of selfish reasons I think I do. I would say like of all the things I do, podcasting is probably one of my more selfish things that I do because I just love the networking and meeting people and learning and the interaction. And like I said, for me, I think it's a time capsule. I love going back and I'm going to be almost 200 episodes into it by the time this year's out. So looking back and seeing what I've done and just the friendships and the people I've met, like now when you meet someone or you see someone, oh, I had them on my, you were on my podcast or yeah, I remember you or like now I've got a new follower on social media. So it allows you to connect with people, especially during COVID. It was great because I couldn't go network in public. So I just had people on my podcast and it was a great way to network and meet people and just learn. So I think, you know, who should start it, especially if you have a business nowadays, um, I think it's important because it helps tell your story. And I truly believe this. People buy from people, not from businesses. And we're seeing that more and more with the companies that, that come out nowadays. That they're people-based and people want to relate to that. And even goes back to, say what you were, Ronald McDonald when we were kids was the face of McDonald's. That's the reason you went there was because of him. I think people want to hear your story and podcasting is a great way to get it out there, both in short and long form. And I think it's just a great way to connect with people. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way for you to flush out ideas. It's a great way for you to keep your communication up. So I think everyone should do it. But I think you have to have the passion with it, though, and you have to be consistent with it. So if you're going to release one episode a week, commit to that. If you're going to release one episode a month, commit to that. It's like I tell my kids when they join a sport. I don't care what you do. You could not do it after this season. But once you start, at least make sure you, you finish. <laughs> right. And that's what's going to give you the value of it. But I, I think everybody should do it, to be honest with you. But I know everyone won't. But it really is a great way to get your story and your message out there. Right. Perfect. And everybody should at least listen. And we do know that our listeners here on The Authority certainly know about good podcasts. So yes. thank you all for being yes. here. Mike, if people can only read one part of the book, where would you tell them they should read? Oh, man, that's a good question. I think you time to think about it by saying you are you get really two answers because you already mentioned before the story about meeting the former president of Nicaragua and how that was part of your entrepreneurial yeah. growth, right? <laughs> Listeners, if you have a copy of the book, check that out. But then if it's okay, I only have time for one part or I'm going to read one part and that's going to tell me if I'm going to read the rest, where would you point them to and say, check this out and you'll get a really good idea of what this is all about. As I'm looking at it, and I got to look at the table of contents just so I make sure you're good. I would say the I failed first grade one is probably the best only because I think there's some lessons in there that are important for everybody that you're going to do. And I think the idea of what you're going to see. The other ones are the last couple of chapters where I talk about marketing, sales, and implementation, which to me are the biggest thing 
most businesses don't know how to fire on all three of those cylinders. So I would say those are probably the two. I know you asked for one and I'm giving two, but I would say those are probably the, the areas if you had time, I would go there. That's where I would go first. I would go there is to the, I failed first grade. I think that's the spot I would go to. If you can only read one part, but it's an easy it's, it's a quick read. It's a quick read. It's a breezy read. And there's, a, it's packed with a whole lot of ideas from Mike's entire career. So I think listeners will enjoy it. Mike, so in the show notes here, we'll put the link to where listeners can find your book like so on a rooster and we'll also link to mike's website and social media for everybody who wants to learn more is there anywhere else people should find you learn more about what you're working on connect yeah just all those places uh, mikefakera.com is the website that also has all links to my stuff there's also you can book a time there if you'd like to speak with me so you can go there as well but i'm very active on in instagram is probably the best place instagram and linkedin are probably the best two places to connect with me though excellent well mike Ficara, thanks so much for being on the authority and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate everybody who's listening to. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast. If you have not already, click the subscribe button. That means a lot to us podcasters. So make sure you do yes. that. Yes. Yes. Listeners, please do subscribe to The Authority. Give us a good rating. Tell us what you're all about. It, it helps. Uh, of course, it helps us and it helps your peers learn, find out about the show and learn from guests like Mike. And also just check out the podcast network to learn about all of our other shows as well. There's plenty out for there. And uh, we'll also put a link in there to Mike's podcast, The Start Down. And he has lots of great conversations with entrepreneurs, folks in the education community and beyond. But you check that out as well because uh, you'll get a lot of value out of it. Mike, thanks for being here. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we'll talk to you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.